Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Porsche. And I'm Matt Dixon. And today we're joined by Martha Bloom, researcher at the University of Sussex Business School. Martha has worked for the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Center and is currently working for the Digital Research and Innovation Value Accelerator Project. Welcome, Martha. It's great to have Hi, you. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So it's good to see you again. I think the last time we met, I was delivering a short talk about the returns to undergraduate degrees, which is some work that we've actually talked about on the show here. Uh, that comes from some work that Matt and myself and others have done. Uh, and that was an event that was held by the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Center. So today is my opportunity to return the favor to you. And uh, because you've actually also written a report on the returns to degrees, specifically focused on the creative arts industry, I thought this would be a really good opportunity to bring you on here and share some of those insights that come from your specific study about actually what is a creative arts degree worth. But before we talk about that, could you tell us briefly what the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Center is all about? Sure. So the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre, or PEC for short, uh, was launched in 2018 as part of the UK government's industrial strategy. And it's a major AHRC funded research centre. It's led by Nesta and includes academics from um, 10 different universities across the breadth of the UK. Um, the centre was really set up to provide independent evidence to inform policies for the creative industries. So we seek to bring together industry, academia, policymakers to address current and emerging as well as future issues concerning the creative industries. So it's really sort of bridging between academia, industry and policymakers. So I think that seems to be very important, especially these days, since none of us are running on autopilot anymore. Do you think the creative industry is, I don't want to call it in, in, in trouble, but do you think there are challenges ahead for the creative industries in terms of now obviously with COVID, but also just in general with some of the government policies that, that, that we're seeing or that we're seeing discussed anyway? Yeah, well, I think that there are, Government policy around the creative industries seems to be not particularly streamlined, is, is maybe a, a way to put it. So I think there's, there's a lot of, of policy targeted towards the creative industries. There's a lot of sort of hype of the creative industries and understanding of, of how important they are. So the last industrial strategy, for example, the creative industries were one of the you know, big pillars of that. So there is a real recognition that the creative industries are important, they're growing, they're you know, a major part of the UK economy. But then at the same time, you have all this education policy, which is seeking to sort of reduce creative uh, education provision. So for me, those, those two things are, are somewhat at odds. Um, I guess yeah, in... You're right. You know, I was recently looking at the BBC News article when they were talking about teacher training provision. And, and actually, lots of people want to become teachers now because, you know, it's a kind of a stable job and, uh, and there's a kind of, you know, a future there in quotation marks. But then the government decided to kind of, uh, you know, reduce the bursaries or um, support for exactly the kind of the arts teacher training uh, whilst maintaining it for more the STEM subject, engineering, mathematics, all that kind of stuff. So very very kind of specific policies geared there towards against really creative arts. Yeah, exactly. This this real sort of mismatch, I guess. And I, I wonder if part of it is the way that 
so the, the creative industries are, are sold as bringing economic value, which is certainly true and is incredibly important. Um, but they also bring a lot of cultural value. And I, I wonder if part of the mismatch is in that kind of framing around the creative industries, almost as opposed to the cultural industries. Um, and so the sort of lack of provision for creative subjects, those being more the cultural subjects, so more music, literature, fine art, theatre, dance, those, those kind of subjects, um, which actually are still hugely important economically alongside some of the other you know things like film or software development this sort of like big headline kind of sectors of the creative industries i think i mean it's, it's problematic kind of as you talk about that that streamlining or that kind of mismatch of policy um around the future but also you see it in the response you know the kind of pandemic response whereby theaters and cinemas and, and what have you you know having real um struggle um venues and you think well okay that's a current problem uh in in the sense of uh you know can you imagine lockdown without um netflix or tv you know these kind of these kind of things um but also for the future you think venues are where kind of bands first play you know artists and, and what have you and if we lose those kind of venues which so far you know haven't really had any specific uh, support to keep those industries going because we know they're viable right um, when everything's kind of back to normal people I'm sure will be very keen to go to gigs go to the theatre that sort of thing um, so it's a problem not just for kind of current culture and, and consumption and well-being of people but also for the future of you know we've got if you think of all the bands and artists and you know we've got such a rich kind of uh, cultural and, and creative history as a nation and we're just going to kill off the supply line, which is again, like you say, just completely um, mismatched with what we know is the value of those industries, both economically and also for yeah, just for our you know for our sanity and our well-being. Yeah, I think that's entirely true. I think that so so. Firstly, um, the PEC did some research recently into people's um, content consumption during lockdown. And they found that not only are people consuming a lot more during lockdown, so watching more film and TV, listening to more music, reading more books, but actually those things were actively contributing to helping people deal with the crisis, helping their mental well-being, helping them be able to get through this crisis. And, and I think that moving forward there, I, I completely agree that it is the, the venues is, is sort of my big worry for the creative industries, because I think, the content-based industries, they've been able to survive to a certain extent. Throughout the pandemic, they've been able to, to do some stuff. The service-based industries, similarly. So things like software development, architecture, those kind of industries that have been okay. It's the live performance where the hit's really been felt. And you're entirely right, it's the, it's the infrastructure of, of venues. If that goes, you know, when things return to normal and suddenly we don't have those venues, where do those artists go? What do people do? And before the pandemic, national governments and local governments across the world were spending so much money and in investing in exactly that kind of infrastructure, right? Because we know that culture-led regeneration works. We know that having lots of arts and heritage venues alongside other things really helps to improve local and regional economies and um and, and improves uh, lifestyles and, and all the rest of it 
And, and if those things go now, it's going to be so much more expensive and so much more challenging to build those back up from, from the ground than to just sort of maintain what we have. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's going to be, let's see where we are when, 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 when we're finished with all of this. But, you know, I still need my museums to be there. It's been ages since I've been in one. Unfortunately, I've got young kids and <laughs> they won't really have me in there. Um, so, you know, fingers crossed. But listen, let's talk about more about young people's choices. And, you know, anybody who's going to university now will have, well, will have had made a very difficult decision on whether they should go take a gap year in this whole coronavirus situation. But more specifically, let's talk about people who are thinking of potentially doing something uh, in the creative arts area. So Matt and myself, we've written some, we've done some research and written uh, a report or two on sort of the value of a degree. Now, we didn't look at art subjects or creative arts subjects specifically, but um, where we did look at subjects, generally, it didn't look that great for those kind of subjects such as creative arts. Um, You've gone into more detail. So do you want to tell us a little bit more, first of all, why you wrote that study? Yeah, well, and to be totally honest, the, the starting point for the study um, was your paper on the returns to undergraduate degrees. That was that was the starting point. So uh, the PEC, we, we read your paper and it was fascinating and Yay. we saw the, um, one citation um, and we saw that, that you guys found um, creative art subjects having some of the lowest returns and we thought well, what's what's going on there because we know that the creative industries are one of the fastest growing sectors in the UK we know that they contribute huge amounts to the UK economy. And we also know that there's actually lots of skills gaps in the creative industries. So almost half of firms in the creative industries are reporting skills gaps in their workforce and specifically creative skills are in really high demand. So if the jobs are there and the skills are needed, then why aren't these creative graduates earning more? Like what's what's going on? There must be something happening here. So, so that was really what we wanted to, to investigate. Um, and we, we specifically wanted to do two things with this report. So firstly, we wanted to see whether taking a creative subject at university did actually lead to working in the creative industries. Um, and secondly, we wanted to look at whether motivation played a role in graduate salaries so whether um, people who took a certain degree maybe had different motivations for entering work than people who took different subjects and whether that was was part of what was playing into these really quite big sort of discrepancies that, that you guys found in your research. I think that's really important because one thing with the work that, that Franz and I with others have done um, the benefit of it, we've had the data that's linked, you know, so it's all the, um, the kind of population of, of higher education students and then linked to their tax records. So you've got that really big picture. Uh, and so you can drill down into, you know, specific subjects, um, at, even to the level of subject at a particular university, there's enough people in there for us to be able to, you know, look at the economic returns. But what we can't do is go beyond just, are you employed and do you have earnings? Um, so we don't know whether you're in a particular occupation. We also, with the creative arts, it's one of the things as well that comes out in your report that you know, people are more likely to be working part-time 
and one of the things is with our data that we were using we just have annual earnings so we don't know how many hours people do and so again for any particular subject where people are working fewer than uh, standard hours that's going to you know bias down the the returns and make it look you know worse uh, than it is and the other thing is just this motivations bit that you know being able to get that more nuanced and textured information about why people go into uh, the jobs that they do what their yeah what what their kind of desires are what their motivation for that particular role is and that's something that yeah you you've been able to do um which is just really important because it kind of adds to the picture you know we, it's great to have the big data that we had and and have the larger scale picture but to drill down into okay why as you say you that report turns up um some interesting findings for creative arts and so understanding that from the inside you know for, for from yourselves who've got that kind of knowledge of the industry is super important but before we go on to that just to check so you're talking about creative arts people with creative background and and the report says you've got 17% of graduates have some kind of creative arts background. So um, just to kind of set the terms as we, as we talk about it, what, so how are we defining kind of creative arts in this report? Yeah, so in, in our report, we, we look at creative education rather than sort of specifically creative arts. So we take a really broad view of creative education because we're interested in this link between creative education and the creative industries we use a definition of um, creative education, which is any subject which aligns to the creative industries. And the creative industries quite helpfully have this very um, robust definition. So there are specific zip codes which form the creative industry. So it's relatively easy to then match those zip codes to specific um, subjects. So because the creative industries are, are quite broad, as, as I think I mentioned, they encompass things like performing arts, TV and film, but also things like architecture and publishing and software development. So using our definition, we really get to include all of the subjects that would fit with any of those subsectors of the creative industries. And we're also able to then break those subjects down into smaller groups. So all subjects aligned with architecture, all subjects aligned with software, all subjects aligned with TV, film and music, for example. And those um, codes, the, so the SIT codes of standard industrial classification. So this is what's used in all sorts of other kind of government reports and, and um, data analysis. That's, so it's a, a well-established measure and, and, as you say, a very clear definition of what is uh, a creative industry. So that's, yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. So. We've talked about definitions. <laughs> We've talked about the setup of all of this. <laughs> Let's get some results in there because that's the key question here. So starting at the top, really, you've actually also looked at employment. And I think that's quite an important thing. We've also looked at employment, but not in so much detail for us. Always the headline was, was money, earnings, you know, how much are you going to take away from this in terms of cash? Um, what do you find for, you know, are you going to get a job out of this Yes, the good news is, yes, you are. <laughs> um, creative graduates just likely to be in employment. Um, they are a lot more likely to be working in the creative industries. Um, so we find that the majority of creative graduates are doing some kind of creative work three and a half years after they graduate. So that's either working specifically in the creative industries or working in a creative job outside of the creative industry. So that might mean um, 
working in marketing for a bank or something. So it's still a creative job because it's in marketing, but it's outside strictly the creative industries. So yeah, over half of graduates are working in some kind of kind of creative job. That's good news. Is there any kind of distinction there between self-employment or, you know, being an employee? Yes. So we find that creative graduates are far more likely to be self-employed. Okay. Across all industries, they are a lot more likely to be self-employed and specifically in the creative industries, even more so. So creative graduates really are doing quite different types of jobs to what, what we refer to as non-creative graduates, people doing different subject areas. I think that's quite interesting because I've previously done a bit of work for kind of uh, small businesses, uh, for example, the Federation of Small Businesses, who are, you know, very big on sort of uh, this concept of self-employment. And if you look at, you know, the companies, the distribution in the UK, most companies in the UK are, are small, are small enterprises, right, with five or ten uh, uh, employees, something along those lines. So, you know, what you're saying here is that we've got creative arts, creative studies graduates coming out, hitting the labor market, and then within a very short time actually creating their own companies or, or at least trying to create their own companies first by themselves and then maybe hiring some people and trying to keep that going. And, and I think that's actually probably something that a lot of people don't think about. And I suspect also that that pathway is probably quite a difficult pathway because we know a lot of sort of, you know, small businesses do fail in the first couple of years and then people try again and again and again sort of churn in that particular aspect of the labor market. So it's, it's, it's interesting that, that there's a type of, of, of person here coming out, hitting the labor market and just, you know, trying to, trying to do something creative really yeah yeah exactly and yeah and entrepreneurial you know so a lot of government policies you know we talk a lot about entrepreneurial spirit and how can we really encourage entrepreneurs or creative graduates are entrepreneurial we, we know this we know this from the numbers of them who are going on to as you say start their own business or to work freelance but I think that also then kind of masks a lot of what might be going on with graduate salaries so so as you're saying earlier Matt about the the, the difficulty of not uh, of the, the data that you guys use for your report not including ours the it's really difficult to capture um self-employed earnings i'm sure you guys know a lot and i know that, that your data does does do that to some extent but it's self-employed earnings and hours are really difficult to quantify you know if you run your own business you're essentially working 24 7 right it's, you know no, no matter it's how not, much it's not really possible we haven't done it you know all our work and whenever anybody reads anything about the returns to a degree it's often or education in general it's often about employees mm -hmm. so you know damien hurst he isn't in our data set because you know he's out there self-employed making a lot of money super rich very creative he's not counted mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, and that also I think speaks to the the structure of the creative industries in general. So one of the really interesting things about the creative industries, when you look at firm sizes, you see that there are a couple of really really big firms, and then there's the majority are small or micro firms or freelancers, individuals, one one person bands, and and that is then also reflected in their graduates. You know that there really is this this huge discrepancy between being an employee for one or two of the really really big firms or working for yourself in a small startup. Yeah, I think as well. What I found really interesting in the report is looking at uh, people who are in graduate level jobs and how um, for the creative graduates, it's something like you know in the survey three and a half years after graduation, like two thirds are in graduate jobs, which is 
which is high. I mean, there is a problem of graduate like underemployment, um, and that that two thirds is higher than graduates of law, of biology, of psychology, anything. Wow, you know, that's that's uh, uh, something I didn't expect to read um, in the report. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, graduates do care. We looked at money um, and that is obviously something that people care about when they're deciding on their degree. But employment and kind of developing skills that you're going to then um, find are rewarded in the labour market. Often we talk about, you know, soft skills. And I think in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, there's been much more appreciation uh, amongst policymakers of uh, of the value of kind of what we might call non-cognitive skills, um, being able to get on with people, um, being able to work in a team, communication, problem solving, all these, you know, um, things that are just help you get on in the labour market, help you in a job. And that's something that creative um, degrees can be really helpful with. I think um, I, I heard it said before that People do music, it's really in our graduates of music are in really high demand because there's so much um, discipline about being involved in, say, an orchestra whereby you're part of a, a team, everyone's relying on you, you all have your own kind of different roles, and then the kind of discipline of, of practice and all that kind of conscientiousness. That, that these are things that are not easy to measure, so we're never going to get those in the big linked data set, but they are very, very valuable um, in the labor market and, and make you a kind of high demand graduate. Yeah, of of course, of course, I couldn't agree more. And there, there actually has, has been um, quite a bit of research recently about those those kind of softer skills and the value of them. And increasingly, skills like that, like the ones you mentioned, creative skills, critical thinking, teamwork, leadership, all of those kind of skills are increasingly being sought more by employers than some of the kind of harder skills. Because especially with the pace of technological change people are needing to upskill quite quite quickly. Whereas leadership skills, teamwork skills, those are the types of things that can take quite a long time to develop, but once you have them, you have them, right? So they really are, and we talk about transferable skills and I often feel that they're spoken about almost as a bit of a cop-out, right? That you, you know, oh, but there's so many transferable skills that you have and it feels like that's a kind of second best, but it's really not. You know, I think these skills are so important and so valuable and are only going to be increasingly so, you know. I, I think Matt and I can attest to that, you know, being having having moved now into an online teaching environment, <laughs> we're suddenly having to be very creative in how we deliver our teaching, how we keep people engaged, you know. Turns out talking to the camera for two hours isn't very entertaining. It doesn't keep people there. So, you know, there's lots of innovative ways happening now uh, or little methods or experiments happening across universities, how we can teach our students in a better way. And actually a lot of that comes down to kind of, you know, just thinking outside the box, using transferable skills from other kind of disciplines, being creative, thinking about your artistic delivery, your style, all these kind of things. And, and I think both Matt and I have noticed that even in our profession, which is kind of very science focused, you know, we've, we've had to massively broaden our skill set in the last five or 10 years uh, compared to perhaps academics from a generation ago. That's just my personal experience. Uh, but let's talk about money. What does your report find on the money front? Well, it's complicated on the money front. So, <laughs> so, so firstly... That's not really good news. <laughs> yeah, always good news. Uh, firstly, similarly to the graduate level jobs measures is that we find that there's actually no statistically significant difference in 
earnings at three and a half years after graduation between studying a creative subject and studying biology, languages or psychology subjects. So essentially what this means is that um, three and a half years after graduation, if you control for demographic factors, type of um, institution or the rest of it, there's no real difference between having studied a creative degree and having studied biology, languages or psychology, which if you think about it is a STEM subject, a humanities subject and a social sciences subject, right? So, so, so that's the good news. <laughs> <laughs> and now the big part. Well, I don't know is about there a that. But? I don't know. No, we, 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 we have some interesting findings okay. in, in terms of, of, of salary. So one of the really interesting things we find is that creative graduates earn a lot more when they're working in the creative industries. So um, approximately £2,300 a year more when they're working in the creative industries. But we also find that non-creative graduates earn more when they're working in the creative industries. Okay. And we actually find that this, this difference between creative graduates and non-creative graduates is larger in the creative industries than outside the creative industries. So, oh, so Matt and I are in the wrong profession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly, what roles? So, so if you think about sort of about about in your report when you're comparing um, between doing a degree or not doing a degree, and in in my report we're kind of comparing between different subjects, and we can see that a lot of the this big gap that we see kind of across the board between. Um, creative graduates and non-creative graduates in terms of their salaries a lot of that is actually going on inside the creative industries which is really quite surprising for us we we didn't expect that to be the case at all um, but we also found that motivation does really play a factor in that so yes in general creative graduates earn less than non-creative graduates but part of that is possibly because they are more motivated to work in sectors like the creative industries and the creative industries have particular structures that seem to be kind of rewarding creative graduates slightly less than other graduates. So it, 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 that seems really unfair in a way that you've got, you know, people who have a, a real intrinsic motivation to go and work in the creative industries and the, the functioning of the kind of labour market then um, works against them so that they can, you know, the, these industries can pay a bit less to those people because they're kind of using the fact that these people would work you know really want to work in these industries and as you say half of, of of the graduates go on to work in the creative industries and the creative industries rely a lot on on these creative graduates so you'd expect that normally uh the, the supply and demand issue and you talked about the skills gaps and, and what have you um would work in in the favor there but i suppose it's a little bit like people going into um teaching and nursing uh, where people tend to have a real vocation for that and for you know this is and there's that intrinsic motivation which then means that they don't get that I don't know pet attraction from employers by pay to try and get people whereas if it's me and friends coming to work in the creative industry um, you're gonna yeah you know you're gonna have to potentially um, <laughs> show me the money you know you're kind of uh, to, to, to try and attract us in whereas because of creative graduates not having that same um, need for the kind of pull factor of the money uh, that they get penalized for that so it's really seems really harsh but I, I guess that's the way 
you know, employers are working a margin there to say, well, you know, we can pay them a little bit less because they're getting the reward of being employed in the job they love. Yeah, yes. I mean, I, I think that that is, for, for me, that, that explanation seems to make sense. Um, but then you also factor in this thing about freelance working on top of that as well. So it's not just that because creative graduates are still getting paid more in the creative industries than they would do elsewhere or than they are elsewhere. So I still might make more money working in film than I might working yeah, as a, as a nurse or as a teacher. So there are those dynamics at play. But then also if I'm more likely to want to work in the creative industries and one of the most common routes to working in the creative industries is working freelance, and working freelance pays an awful lot less, then there are other other kind of factors that, that play into it as well. So, and I would love to be able to give you a, a really clear, concise narrative. And I spent quite a long time trying to, trying to work out what, what this narrative was from the report. And it's really difficult because there are just so many sort of different, different factors at play with it, I think. And I think one thing that you, you, know, you mentioned earlier as well is that these graduates in the creative industries are you know, employed in jobs where it's kind of matching their skill profile and they're much more likely to be uh, doing a job that's the sort of thing that they want to be doing. And I think this is such a positive outcome because as, as we touched on before, you know, there's an issue of graduate underemployment in the UK with people going into jobs where actually it doesn't match their skill profile. They're more skilled than the, the job they're going into. And, it, and, and it's not exactly the job they want to do. Whereas your report suggests, you know, a lot of these creative graduates are doing exactly the job they want to do. And that is huge for kind of um, job satisfaction, life satisfaction, mental well-being. And it's just, I, I don't know, it must be very frustrating that when it comes to policy discussions, so much is down to, oh, what are your graduate earnings? When actually these metrics of, of job satisfaction and, and well-being are, are huge. Yeah, completely. So uh three three quarters of creative graduates who are working in the creative industries say that they took that job because it was exactly the type of job that they wanted or it would help them progress in their career like that is that's that's huge like you know three quarters and that that's far higher than non-creative graduates and far higher than both creative and non-creative graduates working outside the creative industries so you're right if if creative education is enabling graduates to get the type of jobs that they want and the type of jobs that are good for the economy and good for society then then, then where's the issue why, why are we wanting to, to roll that back at all yeah so it's for love not for money <laughs> or at least a lot of it is love and some money <laughs> now i think that's all very interesting uh, and i think you know obviously we haven't even discussed yet the kind of you know what are the the kind of externalities associated with the creative industries and how it you know you mentioned it earlier briefly how especially during times like this it's very important for our you know mental well-being we're all kind of stuck at home and you know there's issues about what we do with our time i mean you mentioned earlier that people are watching more tv i've watched less tv i've got <laughs> i've just been working all the time i'm going slightly crazy but um yeah I mean, undoubtedly, the, 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 the creative industries are, are a massive component and, and, and will forever stay a big component. I think sometimes it seems to me just some people just don't realize that kind of, I mean, society is shifting and perhaps our definition, our meaning uh, 
of what creatives might shift. So a lot of perhaps older people, including myself, might, when you mention the word creative, I kind of think of the theater or something like this, right? But, you know, uh, I, I suspect younger people will be thinking more about YouTube, for example, or, or computer games, you know, gaming development, whatever it is. I know that the gaming industry has had a big boom over the last six months, uh, just because I used to play games myself, but <laughs> not anymore, not yeah, anymore. Scrabble doesn't count, friends. No, 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 Scrabble, no. Hey, hey, hey. I, I, I was out there guns blazing, you know, shooting the others, winning, but um, not anymore now. I'm a serious guy, um, <laughs> at least since the lockdown. But listen, uh, we have actually a another report in front of us that was recently released and this one was released by Matt and myself way <laughs> and some others there's some other people on there to give, give a shout out to them <laughs> but and I kind of wanted just to bring that in there because actually there is a little bit about some of the stuff we were talking about earlier there is this kind of idea of you know um, skill complementarity especially into the creative industries so I'll bring that up at the relevant point but Matt do you want to give us you've actually read the report recently <laughs> and blogged about it do you want to give us the highlights yeah so this was the report um, uh, that that you and I did with with quite a few others many at the IFS um, looking at the returns to postgraduate degrees. So you can have, obviously, um, we've been talking about creative arts and, and a lot about undergraduate degrees, but obviously you do, you know, masters, PhDs as well. Um, and so this report was looking at, okay, well, what is the um, economic value in terms of earnings and employment of doing a postgraduate degree over and above, you know, just having an undergraduate degree. So everyone in the data has got an undergraduate degree and we just look at how it affects things if you, if you go further. Um, and it's for people, you know, looking at earnings when they're age 35. Uh, and so interesting, again, a bit like what Martha was talking about with, with the report there, there's a lot of, of interesting results, there's a lot of nuance and, and, and um, detail that we can get into a little bit. But just if you look at the average um, earnings, then you see that on, on raw earnings, then yeah, people with a PhD uh, or a master's earn more uh, than people with just an undergraduate. For men, it's like about Undergraduates earn about fifty thousand um, a year on average at age thirty-five. Uh, but if you've got a master's, it's like fifty-six. If it's a PhD, it's fifty-two. But what you find is that a lot of this is explained by the background of of the individuals, their undergraduate attainment, their kind of school A levels, that sort of thing. Once you control for that, then pretty much all of that additional learning, you know, it goes away, right? So when you compare, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, when you compare like with like. Um, and and doesn't matter, you know, men and women, it, it completely kind of reduces these these premia. Um, and so once you do that, it's like for men, you basically get a, a, a minus two percent return, uh, which is which is never great. Uh, but you know, it's uh, it's very small. Um, and for women, it's kind of about plus two percent. But for a PhD, women are still earning a good return, about eight percent. But for men, it's actually like. Uh, nine percent lower earnings for men with a PhD compared to comparable oh, um, God, graduates. Me. Yeah, so that's you and me, friends. There we are. This, here's what you could have won. You know, it's uh, we're, yeah, yes, yes, yes of course. Of yeah, sorry, it's all of us. Yeah, so um, we know that we we are earning less than we could have done. Um, I guess for me, it was a bit of an eye opener as to how much less um, we're earning than we could have done in, in the kind of outside of academia, but. I, I, this is something we've already touched on. You know, people don't do PhDs for the for for money, right? Um, no. I'm not sure they're doing for love either, but they they doing because it's uh, it's uh, yeah, it's you want to be doing research, you want to be at the kind of forefront of 
of your discipline. Oh, was um, that your motivation? Mine was just to avoid the labor market. Yeah, well, okay. I guess there were multiple motivations, but I, I expect you didn't have dollar signs in your eyes when you, when you signed no, up didn't. for that PhD. No, um, but it's quite interesting because you get this kind of difference between the raw earnings and then when you could compare like with light. And um, you see for actually for teacher training that we kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, it's the opposite way around. So if you look at teacher salaries, they're lower, right? So your average undergraduates earning about 50,000 for teachers, uh, for men, this is, it's like 38,000 or something like that. So there's quite a, a drop there. But again, once you compare like with like, you find that basically uh, there's hardly any, uh, any difference. So people uh, doing PGCs, you know, they're coming from degrees where they weren't massively high earnings anyway. So when you can kind of compare like with like, you don't get um, this big negative because it looks really bad. You know, if you look at teachers, and <laughs> you know, you're saying all the stuff and I can see why the newspapers didn't pick up on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, look, it is, it's, uh, it's more interesting, but I think it's important to think about, you know, as we say, these returns, some of them don't look very um, appealing, but what is interesting, uh, particularly at the moment with this thinking about, you know, you mentioned from the labor market and avoiding it. Well, actually, uh, PhDs and masters are actually are associated with, yeah, lower earnings in some cases, but also greater employment probability. Okay, so what, what happens is that you're more, you might not be earning like megabucks, but um, you're more likely to have a stable job. And I think that's, again, it's one of those things, this is what people care about, right? Obviously, people care about money and, and the kind of levels that you're going to be earning, but also care about earnings um, variability and also earnings, uh, well, stability in the sense of keeping a job. Uh, and almost all of the postgraduate degrees, that, even the ones that look like, you know, we've got, we've got bad earnings returns, um, like the PhDs, they are associated with like solid employment. So there's a fairly, yeah, and particularly teacher training, right? That's a very, as you mentioned earlier, there's a future in that. We're always going to need teachers. It's a fairly safe bet, but it, it, it gives you a decent income. It takes you out of the chance of having very high earnings, but it also takes you out of the chance of having no job or very low earnings. So it's kind of a safe bet. It's a safe bet, yeah. Interesting, interesting. And I know there's obviously some variation by subjects. We've talked, spent a lot of today talking about creative arts. Um, what's the situation on subjects like? Yeah, so um, as, yeah, as you say, there's loads of variation. Um, and uh, for women, there's a lot of subjects that are giving you good, sizable, um, statistically significant returns. Um, like economics and business are getting any kind of 17, 18% return over and above having an undergraduate, just an undergraduate degree and 25% um, for law. But for other subjects, it's kind of a mix. You find a lot where there's basically zero return or slightly negative. Um, and for men, yeah, I mean, the number of, you get the same kind of thing where the certain degrees like law, economics, business will give you high double digit kind of returns over and above an undergraduate degree. There's quite a lot uh, where it's, it's basically zero or, or negative yeah i mean unfortunately you know i'm looking at the figures right now creative arts is towards the bottom again but i think here to me and this is kind of what i wanted to bring in earlier to me the interesting thing is um when you condition things on the undergraduate degree to type of undergraduate degree and i know we looked we i remember talking about this in quite detail uh, a while ago when we were doing the data analysis on this that there's actually a lot of different permutations once you have a undergraduate degree 
you know, you can go in many places and, and often you don't end up doing the same type of degree at postgraduate level, right? I mean, for the science subjects, it's a little bit more likely chemistry undergraduate, chemistry postgraduate, but often when we look at the humanities or the social science subjects, people tend to switch around. So you do economics undergraduate and then, I don't know, English at, uh, postgraduate or something like this. So we actually discovered that there was a lot of movement uh, into, into different subjects. And we classified that into the kind of, uh, well, into, into degrees that are similar. Um, so, you know, biology is kind of similar to chemistry. So you're not moving too far away, but obviously if you're going from chemistry to law, you're, you're moving pretty far away. Right. So we looked at that and, and there, I think you start getting some interesting differences coming out and especially in relation to creative arts. Uh, you know, there's quite a striking result that if you do a postgraduate creative arts uh, degree and you had an undergraduate creative arts degree, you're really not gaining very much at all. You're, you're, you're just taking that big negative hit, income hit, and, and that's what you're stuck with. But if you do a different one, so if you, if you do something that complements that, that art story, you start getting positive results uh, and you're walking away with more money than just walking away with the undergraduate arts degree. And I thought that was quite an interesting little finding there. I, yeah, like for, for me, I find that fascinating. So, so um, my, my PhD research is actually, it's about the combination of skill sets and it's, it's looking specifically at the combination of arts and STEM knowledge bases, arts and STEM skills. And, and so um, I, I know very well that there is this real need for people who have both art skills and STEM skills and these can really complement each other. Um, and so I find that, that finding really, really interesting. And I wonder if it then sort of feeds into this idea of different industries, that if people who have done creative arts undergraduates and then go on to do a master's in creative arts are still wanting to continue working in the creative industries whereas those who are looking to do a master's in a different subject maybe it's because they want to segue out of the creative industries into into somewhere else um and i think that that then again maybe speaks to the fact that the undergraduate skills of, of creative skills that they've learned aren't holding those people back from going into something else to going into a different industry and actually they're earning quite a lot of money doing so really sort of capitalizing on the skills that they've learned at undergraduate and transforming them maybe slightly more sector specific knowledge to, to go somewhere else. Um, I think that's, yeah, I, I just think that's a fascinating finding. I wonder, do you, in your report, are you able to look at it the other way around, you know, to see if people who studied STEM subjects, is it just any other subject that is different they do well is there anything you know specifically if they were to do a creative subject later on so there's so much so many permutations we can't do um do everything which is why i come up with this uh whether you're doing something similar or something completely different or the same subject so with stem the stem and things like law and economics generally they're high earning undergraduate degrees and so your best bet in those situations is to carry on uh, in the same subject. And that tends to be where you'll get the highest, highest earnings. You start switching away, even something similar, and you can you know, end up like, so if you switch away from an economics undergraduate to a different, even just a similar master's, you're going to get a, a negative compared with if you'd carried on. Well, I don't, and the thing with STEM is you've got certain ones that are close to it, but everything else is quite a broad 
category so if we look at you know what happens if you switch to something completely different that's going to include kind of creative subjects um, but it's also going to include like social science subjects as well and, and humanities and so it's quite difficult to then unpick but it is something I I'm really interested in it's something we could potentially look at in the future is instead of doing it the way we've done where we've looked at undergraduate and then whether you stick or switch look at it the other way around and say okay well here's people on creative postgraduates and where they came from right and then you know whether that was something close or something completely different and how that then plays out um because yeah i think it's as you mentioned there's a lot going on with um selection into who does a a different masters having done an undergraduate creative arts um but also there's the kind of well you're getting these creative skills uh, that we know in in demand and then you're allying it with something else perhaps in social sciences um because i guess there's a limit to what you can actually go on to do at a masters depending on what you've done you know you're not going to go and get into an economics masters having done creative arts directly i mean there are probably routes you can do but um so it's probably subjects in like humanities and social sciences um and we see these yeah really you know double digit returns for people um and so there's there's definitely um positive news anyway there's positive uh, returns out there whatever the undergraduate degree excellent much anything else that popped out of this report other than the kind of headline bad news no i mean i think the thing is we've talked about it quite a lot that um it's not just money that people care about and particularly we've seen you know think about phds we've been looking at the private returns uh to, to having a phd but we've seen you know in the past six months the kind of race around the world for people to develop like a, a vaccine which is massively you know never mind like earnings returns like the value of a vaccine right now you know globally it's you know it's in the trillions right because it's you know the, the economic hit of having so many places locked down um so if you want to talk about economic value you know if one of the oxford scientists comes out with you know uh, a vaccine that goes around the world and, and cures this you know horrible pandemic then that is that's boosting the earnings returns of, of or, or you know the kind of dollar value of a phd in in stem that's covering everybody who's ever done one right in this country i i, I would imagine right in terms of the value of that um and and frontline research cutting edge research is is what you're doing in a phd in in these labs up and down the country and so there's a massive social value and again it comes like with the creative arts that we talked about um people are wanting to do this uh to be motivated to make a difference and those people making not just you know covid vaccines but the kind of the medicines and the treatments and all sorts of of things that people are developing in in labs that is making a huge difference you know and a huge value to society to people so um i think we also you know we always have to you know bear that in mind uh, as well as things like motivation to go into a job and satisfaction and and the hours and flexibility and all these sorts of things that actually make a real difference to our lives um aside from just the kind of you know what's in the paycheck at the at the end of the month so um definitely need to bear these in mind because uh the government i don't know the, there's always someone who's looking to shut down departments or whatever because they think it's not valuable so i think one thing we 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 all need to be doing is is keep banging this drum about what is how we measure the value of of these degrees and and education great that was matt's call for more research funding which i can only <laughs> echo <laughs> martha last question to you and we put this to every guest if you could form decide government policy what is the thing if you could be 
our Minister for Creative Arts, what's the thing that you would change or implement? I, I suppose the, the key thing to, to come out of the report that, that the PEC just did was that if the creative industries are going to continue to grow and they're going to continue to produce economic value for the country at the scale that they have been in recent years, then we really need to be investing in creative higher education. And that's it. It, it. It's that simple. We need to be investing in creative higher education and we can't expect to continue to be this sort of world beating, to borrow a phrase, uh, you know, creative juggernaut. If we don't do that, if we desecrate our creative, the, the pipeline of creative talent. So I think there's, there's maybe things that can be done. We can look at uh, integrating industry a bit more and the design of creative HE courses, more placements in industry. Um, I actually really welcome the government's um, initiatives around apprenticeships. I think that's really positive and I think that those can be pushed forward. I think there's opportunities for greater provision of, of creative apprenticeships. But the bottom line really is that creative education needs to be preserved. Um, it's vital. Absolutely, like something we can sign up to. Yeah, yeah. I think we'd all we'd all definitely um, definitely sign up to that. And I think it's really important. You mentioned that kind of apprenticeships and just getting a closer relationship between um, educators and employers, uh, and whether that's a graduate level or schools. Just you know, developing those links and 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 particularly you know for creative uh, education for people to know and for employers to know the skills that are there and also for, for the graduates and students themselves to know these are the, you know, you've got all these options um, where you're going to be in demand, you're going to be valued. Uh, so anything that brings employers uh, and, and students together, I think is going to be really important, particularly as we go forward into this, what's you know, already a really, really tricky labor market. I, I completely agree. I think that's a really, really important point is that the students themselves, need to understand that their skills do have value. And I think that one of, one of the real travesties of the UK education system is that children from quite early on are sort of siloed into different pathways, right? You're either a creative type person, you do creative subjects, or you know, you're a science type person, you do, you do math, you do physics, you do those kind of things. And it means that kids, you know, like me who started doing creative subjects, don't really feel that they're able to do anything else. You know, so I did, a, studies in my undergrads and I'm now doing labor market economics right like that's completely <laughs> but that's and I going into it, I never thought that that would be something that I could ever accomplish because of this this siloing of systems and part of that is because creative skills were or I perceive creative skills to be less valuable than math skills to be less valuable than economic skills and so I inherently felt that I, because I could do the, the easier creative things, I wasn't able to do the harder mathsy things. And that's obviously complete rubbish. And so I think right the way through the education system, we need to have a greater respect for creative skills, a greater understanding of them as actually being difficult to acquire and to learn and, and to be actual proper skills. You know, they, are, they have value, they are important. I think we need to get you in the education department as well as the as, as the Minister for Culture. But yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Martha. It's been really, really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Borchardt. And I'm Matt Dixon. And we'll be back soon with more.